Come on. Quick ask before we get started today, I am working to help people lead happier and more contented lives. My part of that is money. So if you enjoyed today's episode or if you've enjoyed past episodes, please take a minute and leave a quick review on iTunes. Subscribe. That helps uh, the show climb up the rankings and helps more people uh, find it. So thanks a lot. Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Grumbacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful Paul Sullivan. Paul, are you ready to do this? I'm ready. Excellent. Let's do this. Paul is the New York Times Wealth Matters columnist. He's the author of The Thin Green Line, Money Secrets of the Super Wealthy, as well as the book Clutch. I'm excited to have you on. Paul, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Personal life, man. That 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 I'll, then I'll lose all credibility as somebody <laughs> going to talk to you about money. I've got three kids, three dogs, two cats. I live in Fairfield County, Connecticut, which is a high rent zone. Um, mm. So now I'm going to have to dig myself out of that hole and right. get some credibility back. <laughs> um, I created the Wealth Matters column in 2008. I've written over 500 columns since then. Um, I also edit the wealth, the giving, the money sections uh, at the Times. So I wrote the book, The Thin Green Line, uh, Money Secrets of the Super Wealthy. Uh, I think a lot about money. When I'm not thinking about money, I think about golf um, and my family. But that's, that's, that's Paul Sullivan. I love it. And that was one thing I wanted to congratulate you. It was, it was pretty recently that, that, that you wrote number 500. So congratulations. Thanks very much. It was uh, absolutely one of those things where, uh, as I was looking back, I thought, well, this is 500. Uh, not many people get to 500 columns at the New York Times. I should probably see if I learned anything mm -hmm. uh, along the way. Um, and the best part was that there's so many topics in money and wealth and how we think about money and wealth that when I went back over 499 columns, it wasn't repetitious. That was my biggest fear. Like I'd go back and like every year I, I rolled out the same, you know, five topics on a <laughs> slow week. And, and, and it didn't happen. You know, when I went back to talk about something I'd already written about, it's because the story had, had moved, moved forward. There'd been new thinking or something controversial had happened. So it sort of validated for me that we all need to be thinking a lot more about money and how we manage it, how we think about it, how we save it, because there's at least 500 columns out there to talk about it. Yeah, well, that's I think that's very very impressive, and um, so yeah, definitely definitely congratulations. So you've probably probably money has always been something that's that's been of interest to you. Yeah, but not in a positive way. You know, <clears throat> I think you know you kind of come to these things if you're really passionate about it, as I'm sure you know, because you, you you've had an experience, you know, good or bad. If something's just so so. You know, you, you, you don't care about it. I mean, I never wanted to be a meteorologist because I, I don't really care about the weather. You know, I look outside, some days it's sunny, some days it's not. <laughs> I can't control that. But uh, but money fascinated me because it was always a topic of conversation when I was a child. But again, not in a positive way. Uh, my family, you know, my parents got divorced and we really struggled with money uh, in the early 1980s. And I thought, geez, uh, you know, money must be bad. You know, that was how my, you know, 10-year-old mind you know, thought about it. And sadly, I'll admit this, you know, my, my 20 year old mind, uh, kind of, you know, thought about it, 
uh, in the same way. And it wasn't until I, I moved to New York after school, started working as a journalist, that um, I applied those basic journalist skills of, of asking questions and better listening um, until I started to gain a more nuanced idea of money. And then over the years, uh, I was lucky enough to work for the Financial Times before the New York Times, and I created a, a wealth column there. And that allowed me to really you know, ask the, the motivating questions for me. And those have never been questions of kind of the gawking sort, where I look at somebody with a big house or a big boat or what have you, a fancy, fancy car, and say, geez, I really want that. I always ask different questions. You know, If you had that big house, how'd you afford it? You know, what what does it mean to you? What type of sacrifices did you have to make? Did you have to make sacrifices? You know, what are the things, you know, everybody, no matter how wealthy you are, has a pressure point. And I wanted to understand those with people up and down the, the wealth scale. Be it somebody with 100,000 in the bank, a million, 10 million. You know, I wanted to ask those questions and really understood, understand what motivated people's actions and behaviors uh, around money. Yeah, I appreciate that. When you say they have a pressure point, what what do you mean? People talk about, you know, I, I think the, the the most useless thing somebody could say is that's expensive. Hmm. This is an easy example to ex- explain. That's expensive. Well, maybe it is or maybe it isn't. I mean, it all depends on how much money you have. It all depends on how you want to, you know, spend your money. I mean, for somebody spending, I don't know, $1,000 on on a new set of golf clubs. That could be expensive. Mm-hmm. Another person spends a thousand bucks, you know, every other year on a new pair of new set of golf clubs. It's it's priorities. And so what I wanted to do is get people away from their their value judgment, the, the sort of assignment of, of belief around money, and and say, okay, if you're spending a thousand dollars on golf clubs every other year, what are you doing with the rest of your money? You know, is there something that to you, you're not going to spend your money on. Is there something to you that you think it's it's too much? And and that's sort of the the pressure point. If you take people at you know the top end of you know the, the wealth spectrum, people with five hundred million dollars, you know nine hundred million, you know they're billionaires. But I mean there aren't that many billionaires in, in the world. So let's talk about people with hundreds of millions of dollars. They if somebody asks them for a ten thousand dollar donation, that's not going to move the needle. But does a million-dollar donation move the needle? Does that create pressure? Does it a ten-million-dollar donation? How, at different levels of wealth, does the number become significant so that when you're asked to spend it, and, and charity is, of course, another way of spending, that you really have to think about it. And that's sort of that's fascinating to me. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. All right, so I assume that we all have, you know, I think that I probably, I certainly do have have these different pressure points. How do you think that that how does it benefit somebody to take a step back and change the way that they view things and look at it through somebody else's eyes? Is it is it the perspective that that's so valuable? I think that perspective that <clears throat> maybe it's empathy uh, hmm. that can help you understand your your own decisions, you know, better. I mean, for example, uh, I'm a big advocate of doing simple things to the nth degree. And so we take all the money we we spend and we chart it and we write it all down. And quarterly, we say, okay, you spent you know, X amount of dollars on food, X amount of dollars eating out, X amount of dollars on pet care, you know, whatever, whatever those numbers are. And 
you know, you look at the difference between your fixed costs, your your mortgage, your insurance, and you know, costs like you know, eating out to dinner. And the best part about doing that isn't the numbers. It isn't you spent uh, you know five hundred dollars more here and five hundred dollars less there. That's not so significant as when you see the totality of what you've spent your money on. You should be able to say, boy, I'm really glad I spent, you know, fill in the blank, a thousand dollars last quarter eating out with my wife. That was worth it. You don't want to look at it and say, holy cow, you know, I can't believe I spent a thousand dollars on bottled water. I mean, that is a complete waste, and that's actually something that happened to to my wife and I because we, for the longest time, we lived in the house where the water wasn't as great as we wanted it to be because we had very young kids. And so we got all this Poland spring water delivered. And I think one year we'd spent $1,300 on water. Hmm. And I said, this is, this is absurd. <laughs> now, if I spent you know, $1,300 on golf clubs, on eating out with my wife, on doing things with my kids, I'd say, wow, that was really worth it. But it was that, that practice of writing it down made me say, this is ridiculous. And I called you know, the water purification company, and for a couple hundred bucks, they put in a system that made our water perfectly safe, tastes great, and, you know, I save myself that expense of, you know, bottled water getting delivered every every four weeks. Got it. It is, yeah, it's a matter of tracking everything and then having an understanding, to your point right there, $1,000 for one thing might be worth every penny and you should spend more of it and the opposite. We need to get rid of this expense and figure out a different way to do it. So, yeah. are there certain things that... I? Are there certain things um, that you wish that more people had the discipline to do just in, in regard to money? Yeah, it, it comes back to, to my answer to the previous question, and that's to, to, to write stuff down. Because particularly people who are in a relationship, you know, they have a partner, they're, they're married, a long-term you know, boyfriend or girlfriend, it's so easy to turn to the other person and say, I can't believe you spent so much on X. And X is always a thing that that boyfriend or girlfriend really loves that the other person doesn't. Hmm. And then you say, well, yeah, I spent whatever, $1,000 on this, but you spent $1,000 on that. And that is, is so unproductive because it's coming from this position of sort of financial insecurity. If only I had that $1,000 that my, you know, husband spent on golf, uh, I'd have $1,000 to do these other things I want. Well, the other person's thinking, well, if only I had $1,000 she spent on, you know, fill in the blank, uh, I wouldn't have to worry about the $1,000 I spent on golf. And having the discipline and, it, you know, to write everything down, to track it, to put it in categories. I mean, again, I do this quarterly. I do it at night watching TV. Uh, I often have a glass of wine while I'm doing it because it's mindless, tedious stuff. Sure. But there's something so satisfying at the end to look at it and say, okay, this is how we spent our money. There's, there's no argument. There's no, you did this, I did this. It's, it's all out in front of you. And you can say, okay, boy, I don't know. Maybe we, you know, maybe we shouldn't spend that much money doing this, or maybe we should think differently. Or what if I shaved $200 off of the thousand dollars I spent on golf? Would that put us, you know, give us more to do something else? And it's only when you have the, the raw data in front of you, can you take the emotion out of a money conversation? And emotion and money are, are two things that never, ever go well together. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Talk about pressure points right there. That puts pressure on relationships. If 
if there's resentment or anger or confusion as to why somebody's doing what they're doing with 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 money. Mm-hmm. And there's silence too, because you don't really know why. You know, it's so important that somebody spends money on hmm. on something until you, you, until you ask that person, until you see it out there, or you know, we all have. You know, there's a whole part in the Thin Green Line in which I talk about the psychology of money, and we we are all have this baggage around money that we brought with us through, you know, from our childhood uh, forward. And only as adults, you know, do we have the capability to to start to unpack that. And then the question becomes, do we have the desire and the willingness to unpack that? So we understand, you know, why are we making these decisions? You know, and I found a lot in my life, like, if I understand why I'm making the decision, then I can, you know, I, I may still make the same decision, but at least I know why I'm doing or if it's a destructive impulse, I'll say, you know what, I'm not going to make that decision around money, and, and I know why why I should not make it. Now, is this, I, I, I don't want to refer to it as enlightenment, but I think it is, you have a pretty enlightened view on money and being very comfortable talking about it and, and the different challenges that people have. And you mentioned, you know, when you were 10 years old and then when you were 20, had sort of a negative, almost a scarcity view of money. Was it working and, and writing about money all the time and thinking about it and talking about it that, that helped to inform this? It was, you know, kind of getting out of the bubble in which I grew up, which is a very lower middle class um, upbringing. And, you know, working in Manhattan in the 90s and, and early 2000s, I just, you know, came in contact with people who had been raised completely differently than, than, than I have. And, it was great. And, you know, I didn't, I guess probably, to be honest, I probably envied them a little bit in the beginning, but then I came to know them better and got to understand, you know, their own challenges around money. Um, you know, I, I don't want to give too much information here to violate someone's privacy, but I, I knew this girl for a long time whose parents were quite wealthy and, you know, they, they paid her rent, you know, well past the time when they should have. And, you know, I and some other people thought, boy, that's kind of strange. But, in retrospect, you know, why wouldn't they? I mean, she was going to get the money at some point anyway. Uh, why wouldn't they? But she had all kinds of issues around money that had little to do with, with dollars and cents. It had to do with money, what money had come to represent in her life. And what money had come to represent was a, was a form of control, was a, you know, a, a proxy, you know, for, for love and affection. And, and that's when, you know, money becomes complicated and, and dangerous and, you know, not what it should be. I mean, I, anybody who knows me knows I always bang on about money being one thing, and that's money as a means of exchange. If you have more money, you can buy more things. If you have less money, not so many things, and that's it. But we, we get away from that, and money is so many other things because of the psychology that envelops it. It's it's love. It's fear. It's, it's control. It's power. Um, but really, at the end of the day, Starbucks charges us exactly the same amount for a cup of coffee, whether we're, you know, powerful or, or not, because they think of money as a means of exchange. And that's how they keep, you know, brewing coffee for us. Yeah. Yeah. It's neither a good thing, nor is it a bad thing. It is one thing. It is a means of exchange. I like that a lot. Yeah, but coffee is a good thing. But, okay, let me make that clear. <laughs> coffee is a very good thing. <laughs> I think I feel like coffee is probably my favorite beverage, but... Anyway, <laughs> I, I could live without wine. I yeah. could probably live without yeah. water, but I could not live without coffee. I could eliminate everything else 
like, but not coffee. I think that that's funny. Tangent right there, uh, and I'm going to keep going down it, Paul. I live in Phoenix, Arizona. It could be 120 degrees, but a hot cup of coffee always <laughs> sounds like a good idea, man, no matter when. <laughs> right now, we're talking in August. Yeah. Great time. Nice nice and cool in Phoenix in August. That's exactly right. <laughs> All right, so so that 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 view of money and i think it's it's absolutely a correct one how would you counsel people to to sort of unwind themselves if they are doing the opposite if 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 money is so emotional and it carries so much power in their life mm-hmm. you know uh, i did some research with uh this wealth psychologist named Brad Klontz and a lot of our findings are in the thin green line and and he came up with this idea um apart from me called money scripts and money scripts are sort of those deeply ingrained feelings about about money uh and so you know some people equate their net worth with their self-worth um some people you know don't want to spend any money at all because they have this sense of of vulnerability um there are you know four of these different scripts and you know, no, no person is all one thing or another. That would be too simplistic. But looking at these scripts, understanding what they imply and getting a sense of, okay, who am I? You know, what, I, what am I at, at, at this point in my life? I think that's a good foundational step. Uh, and that's, you know, work you have to do on your own because if you go to a financial advisor, even a great financial advisor, he or she is going to start off with, you know, what's your, what are your goals and objectives? You know, where do you see yourself when you're 60 years old? How much can you save a week? And that's <laughs> what they get paid to do. But it's like five steps down the road because if you don't know who you are, that plan to save money is going to be just as ineffective as that diet we put ourselves on on January 2nd. And those diets all fail because they're restrictive. Like, don't eat this, eat that. That's, it's, you can do that for 30 days, 60 days, whatever, and then you say, hell with that, that's no fun. These prescriptive plans, you know, these, these sort of financial diets, as it were, they work the same way. You know, don't spend money on this, only spend money on this, make sure you do that. Again, you do it for a while, and then you say, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. What I advocate is once you understand how you come at money, then work with somebody to create the plan that fits your psychological profile with money. And and that's allowing people to make mistakes. That's allowing people to splurge now and again on things that they really love or they care about or just plain fun, while at the same time having this plan that keeps you going down a road. It, it, it's, you know, it's healthy eating. Let's try to eat more fruits and vegetables and, and lean meats. And, you know, every so often we'll have a giant steak and mashed potatoes and cream spinach and, you know, four glasses of Cabernet and, and you know, wake up with heartburn in the morning. All right. But then, then we kind of we get back on the plan the next day. And, and that's, a, I think, a better, uh, more proactive, more rational approach to, to money, you know, going forward. Oh, I love it. Well, Paul, Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? The difference-making tip is is it is more important to think about, even if you take one week's worth of purchases, think about the why behind every purchase. And once you know the why behind every purchase, it is going to begin your path to liberation around 
fear and guilt when it comes to money. Understand that why and fear and guilt fall away. Wink, that is great stuff. That definitely gets it. Come on. Come on. Paul, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? Where can they get a copy of your books? Well, everyone goes, let's, let's find a bookstore and go there or go to that place <laughs> called Amazon. Yeah. Uh, but all things Paul Sullivan are at pauljsullivan.com, pauljsullivan.com. Perfect. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Paul your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Go to pauljsullivan.com. Check out all the great stuff he's got on there, and obviously check out the New York Times Wealth Matters column as well. Thanks again, Paul. Great. Thanks for having me on. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. Before I go, quick announcement. I've been asked by so many people over the past couple of years about how do I start a podcast that I've developed and released a course that will teach you exactly how to do that step by step from figuring out the kind of show that you want to have to understanding how all the technology works behind it and then how to get great guests and uh, keep the thing moving and how to grow it. So if you're interested in that, check it out and go to georgegrombacher.com forward slash podcast course and you'll find it there. You can just go to the website. I'll also list that in the notes of the show. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing, leave us a review, and definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on!